Good morning, TCC. My name is Katya Lemke. Uh, my family and I have been attending this church for nine years. Uh, this morning I'll be reading from John chapter 17, verses 6 to 26 from the New International Version. Um, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and the glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I still am in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Toilier Community Church. If I haven't met you before, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's a joy to be able to uh, preach the word uh, this morning. I encourage you, to, if you have your Bibles, to open up to John chapter 17. We'll be uh, working our way through the text this morning. Uh, there's a lot there. I'm sure even as Katya is reading, you're naturally asking questions of, oh, what does that mean? And, whoa, that's interesting. And uh, I won't be able to get to all of those questions in this message, and it's already quarter to 11, so 15 minutes of my time is gone. Uh, that's okay. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we will journey through here. Um, the question I love to ask people, if I'm getting to know them or I want to know how they're really doing, is the question of how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? You know, because if I ask some of you how you're doing, you might say, oh, I'm good. Or, you know, this is going on. Or did you see the game? These types of things. But if I want to cut through the small talk, if I want to get to the heart of someone really, really quick, I ask them the question, how can I pray for you? If I were to ask God for something on your behalf, what would it be? If I was to come and petition the Lord of all the universe on your behalf, what would you want me to ask? And suddenly a lot of the, the things of life gain a new perspective 
And as people begin to answer that question, I hear some amazing things. I hear what they're praying for. I hear the concerns on their hearts. I hear the desires of their hearts. And I get to know them in a really powerful way. So it's a question I love to ask. And I think that our prayers are a communication of our desire. They're a communication of our will. They're a communication of all the yearning inside of us that is welling up and coming out directed at God, saying, God, will you move and act in my life in this way? Well, Jesus concluded his conversation with his disciples with a prayer. And if the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, how can we pray for you? How could we pray with you? I wonder if he would not have just started reciting this John 17 prayer. It is remarkable that we have this John 17 prayer recorded for us. A prayer of Jesus to the Father. A prayer that reflects Jesus' will, his desire, his heart for people. And you know what's interesting? I know for myself, uh, this journey in my life has been trying to figure out the will of God, Right? What's the will of God? What's the will of God? What's his will for me? What's his plan for me? What's his desire for me? And so often when I ask that question, the context of it is, is what should I do? But when we read scripture, the Bible answers that question. What is God's will for you? And it's communicated in the John 17 prayer. Jesus' will for your life. And he's a, a lot less concerned about your doing And he's way more concerned about your being. What is the type of person that you are meant to be? Friends, Jesus' heart for us, his will for us, his desire for us is seen in his prayers for us. And we are blessed to have this prayer that we can open in front of us this morning. Now, there's many ways to um, go at a text like this. We could go verse by verse and try to unpack every nuance, and unfortunately, we don't have time for that. But what I want to look at this morning is, what were Jesus' requests to the Father on our behalf? What did Jesus ask God to do for us, in us, through us? And in asking that question, we get a little bit of a glimpse at what is God's will for us? What is his desire? What is his plan? So we're going to walk through those this morning. I believe we have five petitions that Jesus makes to the Father on our behalf. So let's journey through this. Jesus here is praying for his disciples. And it's interesting, the beginning, the first several verses uh, that we have open for us this morning, starting in verse 6. Jesus spends a lot of time giving God a lot of context, which I think is interesting because it often annoys me when I'm praying with people and they give God a lot of context. I'm like, come on, God doesn't need all the context, but Jesus did it, so I must be wrong. I shouldn't be annoyed. I shouldn't be annoyed at Jesus. But Jesus spells out to the Father all that's taking place. He, he, he tells the Father that the disciples have received and accepted him. And he points out that he's now leaving. And this has been a theme, of course, of the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus continually reminding the disciples that he's going away. Now, what's really interesting in this context is, you know, as a father of of young kids, imagine your kids were going to go into an incredibly difficult circumstance. Imagine your children were entering into a context that you knew would be difficult for them to endure. What would the prayer of a parent be? Our prayer might be that they wouldn't have to go through that. 
that they would be spared the pain, that, that somehow that situation would never have to come to pass. But here in Jesus' prayer for his disciples, he acknowledges not only that he is leaving, but he highlights and emphasizes the fact that, Lord, Father, my prayer is not that you take them out of this situation. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. He's not asking that we be removed from the difficulty. Rather, he petitions the Father to work in the lives of his followers in the midst of the difficulty that is to come. That's his prayer, that God would do a work in our lives. And what are those prayers? The first is that we would be kept in the Father's name. Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Now, this is an interesting phrase that Jesus is using. We've been visiting this concept throughout the Upper Room Discourse, this idea of a name. Because in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in a different way. And how is it that he teaches them to pray? You pray in the name of Jesus. We've been talking about how the the name of a person isn't simply their name or how you would refer to someone, but it is the character or the nature of that person. It embodies the whole of who they are. So when Jesus is praying that we would be kept in the name of the Father, it's that we would be kept in the name and the nature, the way of God. You know, it's interesting when we look at the Old Testament, uh, go back to Exodus chapter 3. We have Moses, who's having a very interesting conversation with God. And in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asks God this question. God is telling him, I'm sending you uh, to the people of Israel. I want you to lead them. And in Exodus 3, uh, verse 13, um, he asks this question. Moses says to God, if I come to the people and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. The name of God, Yahweh. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So we have in the Old Testament Moses being given the name of God and sent to lead the people of God. In the New Testament, we have Jesus given the name of God, sent to lead the people of God. Do we see the parallel? And that name of God, not simply a reference to God, but his nature, his character. That the people who lived in the name of God were to be his people. To live according to his way. To live the ways that he had called them to. To recognize him as king and lord over their lives. This reference to being kept in a name implies that there are other names that we can live under. Other banners that we can set up over our lives. Other ways in which we can walk. Other allegiances that we can form. But Jesus' prayer is that we would be kept in his name. That our allegiance would be to him alone. That the way in which we walk in the world would be the way of Jesus. The way of the Father. The way of Yahweh. But Jesus recognizes that this will not be easy. In fact, he recognizes that this will be opposed. Which leads to his second request. Keep them From the evil one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
We titled this teaching series, Living the Life. And do you realize that those of us who seek to live the life that Jesus has called us to, that we face opposition to that? (laughs) That there are spiritual powers actively working to keep us from experiencing the life that Jesus has for us? Do you realize that? In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. 1 Peter chapter 5 reminds us that the devil prowls prowls around like a lion, looking for people to devour. Ephesians chapter 6 We're reminded that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers. So Jesus recognizes the opposition. He recognizes that our life in him, living under the name of the Father, that it's going to be opposed. So his will, his desire for us, is that we would not give in to temptation. That we would not be overwhelmed by the messages of the enemy trying to allure us away from the Father. Jesus' third prayer in this is that the disciples would be sanctified in truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, this word sanctify sounds very churchy and spiritual. Um, if we go into the Greek, um, it's the, the Greek is the egiazo, uh, which is to be made holy. It is the verb form of the noun, holy. And so when Jesus is saying, sanctify them in truth, he's asking that they would be made holy in the truth. This is more clear in the NLT um, translation of the Bible. So Jesus is praying that the Father would make them holy. Now, what's interesting with the word holy in our culture and context is we often think of holy simply as um, some sort of moral purity, right? This idea of someone being holier than thou, which is to say that in terms of morality, that person is perfect or striving to be perfect, these types of things. And while that is a part of holiness, I think that moral perfection is better described as righteousness by God's standards. Um, Holiness is not simply moral perfection. Rather, the idea of being holy in Scripture is the concept of being set apart. If you are holy, it's that God has set you apart. So in the Old Testament, we see the nation of Israel is described as God's holy nation. A nation that was set apart for God to do the works of God. Were they morally perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, But they were still holy. In the New Testament, we see that we are referred to um, in in the New Testament letters as saints. And that word saints is the same word, the same noun of being, sorry, the adjective of being holy. We are saints, we are holy, which is to say we are God's people who have been set apart. So Jesus' prayer here for sanctification is not simply that they would be morally pure, but that they would live in the reality That they are God's people set apart for a unique purpose. That's why I believe that this verse uh, includes the emphasis of them being sent into the world. And so Jesus' prayer is that we would be set apart as we are immersed in the truth. Friends, there's this reality that the disciples of Jesus, that you and I this morning, we come up against all sorts of lies 
all sorts of deceit. We come up against all sorts of messaging and information that might be contrary to the truth of God's word. We live in a world that wants to say that maybe that creation, that the very, our very existence was not brought, brought about on purpose. That there is no God who created. And there certainly is not a God who created you individually. And there certainly is not a God who loves you individually. And while we can acknowledge that there was a man named Jesus who lived in the first century, uh, he certainly was not the son of God and he did not die or he did not rise again from the dead. These are all messages that we can receive in our culture. And if you believe in those messages, you're conformed to them. And you start living in a way contrary to the way that God has for you. But if we believe in the truth of the word, what is the truth? That God did intentionally create the universe. That there is a God who made each and every one of you intentionally with love and with care. That's the truth. That that God did send his son into the world and his name was Jesus. And that he performed many signs and miracles and pointed people back to this creator God. And that Jesus did in fact die, but yet he rose again on the third day. That is the truth. And because he rose again on the third day, he created the possibility for all people to be brought back into relationship with him and experience union with God. Friends, that is the truth. So Jesus' prayer is that we would be sanctified, that we would be transformed as we are immersed in the truth of God, the truth of God's reality, that we would see the world the way that God sees it, that we would understand the world as God understands it, that we would go about walking in the world the way that God has planned for us to. Friends, we need to be sanctified in truth. And Jesus prays that for us. And Jesus gave a reason for this one, that it, there's a missional purpose. That as we are sanctified in truth, we are also sent into the world. As Jesus was sent by the Father, so his disciples were sent. So at this point of the prayer, Jesus comes to a conclusion where he shifts his focus of prayer. Not just to pray for his immediate disciples who were probably there with him while he was praying this. But he focuses his attention to those who will come after him. Friends, Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for you. You know, it's fun that you could say, hey, did you know that the Bible references me? You're like, what? Yeah, I'm in the Bible. I'm in the Bible. Where? John 17. Jesus references those who will believe because of the disciples' word. That's me. Can you pause and reflect on the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took time to pray for you? He prayed for you. Man, when people tell me I'm praying for you, it's like an honor. It's like, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for bringing me before the Father. Jesus prayed for you because he loves you, because he cares about you, because he wants you to experience all the goodness and the flourishing that you were made for. He prayed for you. We read in Hebrews that he continues to pray for you, interceding on our behalf, speaking to the Father on our behalf. 
And what did he pray? He prayed for us that we might be one. He prayed for us that we might be one. I do not ask for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. Friends, Jesus' desire for us begins in this place of community. That the community that we live in would not be overrun by division, not scattered about, not tearing one another down, but united. Back in September, we did a a series uh, called Life Together. And the whole framework of this series was under this whole idea that the call to follow Jesus is simultaneously a call to community. You cannot divorce the two. That when Jesus calls us to follow him, when he calls us to discipleship, he's calling us to participate in a gathered community. It's implied. It's throughout the New Testament. And we took that and we asked the question of, okay, if we are meant to be a community, what type of community are we meant to be? And friends, this prayer that Jesus prays for us in John 17 echoes so much of that series that we would be one. A community of forgiveness, a community of contribution, a community where we stand with one another and bear one another's burdens in love, a community that is committed to one another to see one another become their absolute best in Jesus. And to do that, we need to be united. So Jesus prays that we would be one, that we would experience that community. But Jesus also prayed that we would experience union with God. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be in us. That they may be in us. Jesus is praying here that we would experience union with God. Now again, pause and think about this. The Trinitarian community of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is praying that we would experience union and unity with them. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Friends, our Christian experience is way more than imitating the life and teaching of Jesus. Though that's part of it. We can look at Jesus' life and say, man, what did he do? What did he say? We can obey his teachings. We can meditate on all that he said and try to do the things that he called us to do. But that's only part of it. That's only part of the life that Jesus has called us into. Jesus wants more than that. He wants intimacy with us. Union with God. Eugene Peterson looks at this. He says that we will be in full participants in all that God is and says and does and in all the ways that God is and says and does. Union with God. That in our present experience, we experience the risen Christ indwelling our hearts by his spirit. Now what's interesting about these two requests for unity and for union is that while they do produce joy for ourselves, they're also meant to bless others. Jesus recognizes that the church is now the bearer of God's glory. 
And in verses 22 to 23, we read that the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, union with God. That they may become perfectly one, unity with one another, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So we catch the so that in this text. Our union and unity It's meant to cause the world to know Jesus, to see the glory of the Father, that the world will know the Father's love. Father, the Father's love. Friends, the world is so impacted. The world is so impacted by our unity and our union. And Jesus prays that our our unity and our union would extend beyond our our own experience, but also impact our communities. So these are the five requests that Jesus makes to the Father. That we would be kept in his name, that we would be kept from the evil one, that we would be sanctified in truth. He prays that we might be one, and he prays that we would experience union with the Father. Friends, that's Jesus' will, his heart, his desire for you. That you would live a life according to the way of God. That you would walk the ways that he called you to walk. That you would be kept from the evil one. That you would say no to temptation. That you would be sanctified in truth. That you would recognize that you are set apart and immerse yourself in the truth of God. The truth of God's word. That you would be one with one another in fellowship and community. And that you would experience union with God, intimacy, the relationship that you were made for from the beginning. So these are the prayers of Jesus. Now, when I think of these prayers, it's easy for me to think, okay, great, Jesus prayed them. Like, let it happen. Come on, God. You guys heard the joke of the drowning man? There's a man living in a small town, and the water in the town begins to rise. It's flooding. And the, his house is beginning to be flooded by water enough so that people um, can start to, like, have boats out on this water. So he's praying to God, God, rescue me from the flood. And some of his friends pull up in a canoe. They're like, brother, come on, get in the canoe. We got to get away from the flood. He says, no, no, God will save me. The waters keep rising. He's on the second level of his house, peering out the window, praying, God, will you save me? And a motorboat comes up. Friend, get in the boat. The water is rising. He says, no, no, God will save me. The boat goes away. The waters keep rising. The man's standing on his roof. He's crying out for God to save him. A helicopter comes. They let down a rope. Friend, grab the rope. No, no, God will save me. The man drowns and dies. He gets to heaven. He says, God, where were you? And God said, I sent two boats and a helicopter. What more did you need? Right? Oh, silly guy. But friends, I think our prayer lives can often be like this. We're praying, we're praying, we're crying out to God, but we don't believe that there's anything we have to do in order to see those prayers enacted or to see those prayers at work. Like the drowning man who's just crying out to God and God is at work all around him, but he refuses to see it. He's waiting for some sort of sign from heaven. A helicopter wasn't enough, apparently. But we can be like this drowning man 
Eugene Peterson says that prayer is involving. I love that. Prayer is involving. Jesus involves himself in the work of the Father through prayer. Jesus involves himself with the disciples through prayer. That as we pray, we recognize this relational element to it. And friends, the Bible calls us as much to activity as it does to prayer. To pay attention. To see what God is up to. So in terms of John 17, I think we rightfully read these prayers, meditate them on them, and ask the question, what do I need to do to participate in the positive answering of these prayers? What is our role in seeing these prayers answered? Just a few quick notes on this. First, I believe we live according to Jesus' word. We live according to Jesus' word. Friends, God loves you. He desires that you would become the person that he made you to be. He desires to transform you as you walk with him. And you walking in his way, however, is opposed by the world and the devil. You walking in the way of God is opposed. I've said this already, and it's highlighted throughout this prayer. It is so important that we live according to God's word. We live according to Jesus' word. That we ourselves recognize this opposition and devote ourselves to faithfulness. That when temptation comes, we see it for what it is. When opposition comes, we see it for what it is and we choose to be faithful, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus no matter the circumstance, no matter the temptation, no matter the social pressure. You know, this morning is Palm Sunday. And the great tragedy of Palm Sunday is Good Friday. Because on Palm Sunday, you had the people of Jerusalem, they came and they welcomed Jesus. They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they waved the palm branches. They welcomed Jesus as their king. But it is very likely that come Good Friday, those same people who shouted Hosanna were shouting crucify him. Because Jesus did not live up to their expectations. He did not overthrow the Romans the way that they wanted them to. And so instead of saying, welcome our king, they said, crucify him. Be away, be done with him. Get rid of him. Friends, we need to resist that temptation in our own lives. We welcome Jesus with shouts of Hosanna and praise. Don't ever let that turn into a crucify him. Let us crown him as king. Let us devote ourselves to living by his rule and his reign. Let us commit ourselves to his word and watch these prayers of being kept in his name, being sanctified in truth, being kept from the evil one come to pass. Secondly, I think we need to put in every effort to achieve unity. Put in every effort to achieve unity. Friends, a call to follow Jesus is simultaneously a call to community. Uh, My daughter and I uh, got a book from the library called The Red Hen. And this, as the story goes of the red hen, the red hen finds a recipe for cake and goes to a cat and a rat and a toad, not sure why, and asks them if they want to help the red hen make the cake. The cat says no, the rat says no, the frog says ribbit, which is frog for no. And the hen goes on to make this cake. And each step, 
the hen asks the cat and the rat and the toad, will you help me mix the ingredients? No, no, ribbit. Will you help me to decorate this cake? No, no, ribbit. Will you help me to eat the cake? <gasps> the cat says yes. The, to- the, 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 the rat says yes. The frog says ribbit, ribbit, which means yes in frog. And the hen says no way. <laughs> Absolutely not. You cannot eat the cake. And I read this story because here's this hen who wants community who wants to do life together, who wants to make a cake and enjoy it with their friends. And the friends want nothing to do with it until the good part. Friends, we want the benefit of God's kingdom without the community. We want the benefit of God's kingdom without the community and the work that it involves. But friends, what if the benefit of God's community is found, sorry, what if the benefits of God's kingdom are found in the community? Have you ever thought about that? What if the good life that Jesus has for you is actually found in the community and the fellowship and the unity of other believers? What if the life you deepest long for is going to be found in intimate relationships with brothers and sisters of Christ? Where you're vulnerable, where you share life with one another, when you do mission together, where you pursue being Jesus to one another and to the world. What if that's where abundance is found? But we're so caught up in our individualistic society, we're so caught up in our woundedness, that we aren't willing to walk across a sanctuary and introduce ourselves to someone else for fear of rejection. And if that's been your case, I am sorry. In our series in the fall, we acknowledge that the place of our greatest healing community is oftentimes also the place of our greatest hurts and rejections. And that is a tension the church has to walk through. But friends, Jesus' prayer that we would be one isn't simply that we would just do the thing he wants us to do, but I believe that his prayer that we would be one is that we would experience joy. That we would experience that life that he made us for. So friends, we need to put in every effort for community. It isn't easy. It requires forgiveness. It requires empathy. It requires us to be charitable to one another. It requires us to suffer alongside brothers and sisters. It requires us to love. But that's what Jesus is calling us to. And lastly, we participate in the answering of these prayers as we continue in Jesus' mission. We need to continue in Jesus' mission. Something really cool that I see in John 17 is that Jesus begins this section by talking about how the disciples have received the word that the Father had given Jesus. So the Father gives Jesus the word, Jesus gives the disciples the word, and then at the beginning of this last section in verse 20, we read about the disciples giving others the word. And we see this movement of the word of God from the Father to the Son, from the Son to the disciples, from the disciples to the church universal. And there's this movement of mission, the passing of the word of God from one group uh, to another. Commentator Leslie Newbigin says that Jesus does not leave behind an ideal or a program. He leaves behind a community. He leaves behind a community. And this community bears the word of God. And as the early disciples had the responsibility of passing on God's word from themselves to the church to be. Friends, we have the responsibility of passing on God's word from our context to the world around us, wherever we may find ourselves. I love Isaac's testimony this morning about athletes in action. 
a ministry of the word of God, passing the word of God from athletes to those in their context. That is amazing. That is the type of work that we need to be doing. And in this text, we see uh, the call of the people of God to have a mission in bringing glory to God, which is how do we live our lives? Do our lives point to Jesus? When people look at you, what do they see? We think about passages like Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says to let your light so shine before men that they may see it and glorify your Father in heaven. Friends, the way that we carry ourselves in the world needs to bring glory to God. That is part of our mission, part of what God has called us to. And here's a scary thought. What if all that someone in your context, what if all that they ever knew about Jesus was from looking at your life? What if their only touch point with the message of Jesus was that they worked with you or that their kids played on the same soccer team as your kids or that you rubbed shoulders with them in your, in your university or high school? What if that was their only experience of Jesus? What would they see? Friends, we need to live our lives in such a way in God's name saying no to temptation, being sanctified in truth in such a way that when people look at us, they see the goodness, the beauty, and the righteousness of God. The second part of the mission is proclaiming Jesus. Again, as I just pointed out, the words from the Father to the Son to the disciples to the church universal keep getting passed along. And when we read in the New Testament, every reference to the declaring of the gospel or the sharing of faith Every time, it uses verbs that include speech. You know, we've become very fixated on the quote that we need to preach the gospel at all times, but when necessary, read, use words. And I don't disagree with that statement in a sense. I think that yes, our lives, it's, it's to the earlier point, our lives should always bring glory to God. But friends, if we are not using words, we are missing what Jesus has called us to do. It is not words or deeds. It is word and deed. Jesus believed that the Father had sent him. The disciples believed that he was the sent one of God. And so too, we are sent into the world. And our mission, our mandate, is to help others see Jesus. So how do we participate in the answering of this prayer? We live according to to Jesus' word, we put in every effort to achieve unity, and we continue on in Jesus' mission. Now, friends, as we meditate on this prayer, it's easy for us, I think, to get discouraged. Because we can look around the world, we can look at our own lives, we can look at the state of the church, and feel like this prayer is not being answered the way that we would like. Perhaps you're here this morning experiencing discouragement in your own life with God. You're feeling overwhelmed with temptation and like you're living in sin. Your experience is not one of union and you don't understand why. You feel like you're holding a stack of unanswered prayers. I think our encouragement in this passage is to stay in the room with Jesus. Imagine yourself sitting in that room, that upper room with the disciples, listening in on the prayers of Jesus. Friends, we need to stay in the room to keep praying with Jesus, 
to keep praying as those disciples prayed. What's remarkable is the story that follows this, is we understand that 40 days later, as it's told, the disciples are sitting arguably in the same room, still in Jerusalem, still praying. Meanwhile, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection have taken place. The disciples may have had reason to believe that the prayers of Jesus were not answered, but they stayed in the room and they kept praying. And while they were praying, what happened? The experience, the giving of the Holy Spirit in power, which deepened their unity, empowered their mission, provided signs and wonders that deepened their faith. Friends, we need to stay in the room and keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. I'm going to invite the worship team uh, to join me on the platform. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that we have this prayer recorded for us in John 17. That we get a glimpse into your heart for us, Lord Jesus. Your desire that we would know you that we would walk in your ways, this desire that we would be sanctified in truth, this desire that we would experience unity and union. And Lord, we confess of the times that maybe our mindset or our behaviors, our actions have actually opposed these prayers coming to pass. So Jesus, make us active participants in the answering of these prayers that we would commit ourselves to living according to your word, that we would commit ourselves to working unity in your church, that we would commit ourselves to continuing in your mission. Lord, help us to stay in the room, prayerful, watching and waiting for the ways that you are at work. And may we experience your work in us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.